So here we are in the temple. And again, hello to you who are on the live stream as well. At the beginning of the Roaring Twenties, yet again, right? A new decade. And we come together to get a little quiet. And with it, we also contemplate this beautiful and troubled world and our place in it. And when we come to sit together, to meditate, to quiet ourselves, sometimes it's for a little spiritual uplift or new perspective or a little fix, or sometimes it's just to get in touch with our own bodies or, or our hearts. Sometimes it's to remember, as you sit quietly, that there's a bigger picture. You remember the famous Ojibwa saying, sometimes I go about pitying myself when all the while I'm being carried by great winds across the sky. Our lives are really mysterious and we actually don't know where they're going and what will happen. You have some ideas about it, but you can't be sure what's going to happen tomorrow. Really. For you or the people you love or people around. So here we had a baby blessing. And then I also want to talk, I want to start to talk about uh, my dear friend Ramdas, who died in December. There's a woman named um, Margot Weiss who created what's called the Salt Monument in Colorado. She had this, had this beautiful wooden kind of temple room built and in the middle of it is a lucite transparent crystal uh, that's suspended on its points and rotates every 24 hours in a circle and it's filled with 7.83 billion crystals of salt, one for each person on earth. And in the morning, she adds this little cup that she has of approximately 350,000 crystals of salt for all the people that will be born that day. And in the evening, she draws off a smaller cup of 200,000 crystals of salt for all the people who died that day. And each time, each day, when she adds the new births and takes the deaths, she does this beautiful prayer and mantra and blessing for those coming in and those going out. Which, by the way, are you at some point. <laughs> right? So here we are. We're kind of in the middle between the beginning and the end of this particular incarnation and in this beautiful troubled world. What do we know? This poem I like from Juan Ramon Jimenez where he writes, no, no yo so, yo no so yo, I am not I. I'm this one who, this one walking beside me whom I do not see, whom at times I manage to visit and at other times I forget. The one who remains silent when I talk, the one who forgives sweet when I hate. The one who takes a walk 
when I am indoors, the one who will remain standing when I die. And it's a reminder that there's some part of you, you know this, that's bigger than your to-do list and your accomplishments and your plans and your personality and your emotions. There's something that's bigger than that that can take a look and say, wow, we're kind of in the middle of this life, aren't we? How's this incarnation going for you? And step back because who you are is not your body. Tacos, Big Macs, kale, you just, that's not your identity. You're not your emotions because they come and go. I hope you're not your thoughts. That would be tragic. <laughs> so who are you? You're the spirit, the consciousness that was born into this body. And that will also leave it. You'll see at the end. And then she'll take off that little take out that little cup of salt. And you'll be one of those crystals. So my dear friend Ramdas died in December. I was with him the week before he died, teaching this retreat. Trudy, my wife, my beloved, and I were teaching together with Ramdas. And Ramdas was the Harvard professor and the kind of LSD proponent with Tim Leary for a long time as Richard Alpert and then his spiritual teacher and a friend and a colleague and a mentor for me and also the author of this best-selling book, Be Here Now, which changed a lot of people's lives. A lot of people would come up to him when we would travel or be together and say, Ramdas, I just need to tell you, you changed my life. How many people have read this and had some effect from Be Here Now. Yeah, maybe a third or so. The rest of there, it's in the bookstore if you're interested. And then there's another new book there called Walking Each Other Home, which is a conversation about dying. He was 88 and in a wheelchair after a major stroke and um, really preparing to die. And this is a beautiful, heartfelt conversation about preparing to die, Ram Das and Mirabai Bush. So Be Here Now, which came out at the end of the 1960s, he wrote things like, when we awaken, we watch the entire drama of our lives. We watch the illusions that we get caught in with unbearable compassion. For you are all form you are the breath, you are the river, you are the void, you are the desires and fears and illusions, and you are the enlightenment that sees it all. When you understand, you realize I am beyond space and time, for I am nothing and everything, and everything is in me. When you see it all, form and eternity as a miracle, then what's left you chop wood and carry water, which is the famous Zen phrase. Once you've gotten enlightened, what else is there to do? You go back in the world and tend it in some fashion. So he was quite ready to die. He suffered a lot in the wheelchair and his body was frail and full of puncture wounds from tubes and 
shots and things like that. And he died very peacefully. When we practiced together at the December retreat, there was a big picture of his guru, Neem Karoli Baba. And uh, Ramdas asked his guru, how do I get enlightened? And his guru answered, love people. He said, no, no, how do I get enlightened? <laughs> and his guru said, feed people. Love people and feed them. And that became a big part of his life. His guru sent him back to teach in the U.S. Ramda said, I'm not ready to do it. He'd been there doing yoga and meditation and austerities and learning all these things. And this guru said, now it's time for you to go teach. He said, I, I, I'm not ready. I'm too uncooked. I'm too impure. You know, you want somebody who's wiser like you. I have too many imperfections to teach others. So his guru got off that little wooden seat where he would be resting and very slowly taking a couple minutes walked around Ramdas one side and his back and the other side looking him up and down looking at his hands and his feet and he sat down and he looked at Ramdas and he said I see no imperfections and that was a moment that really changed Ramdas's life to be seen in that way you know, because we have all these judgments about ourselves, how we look or sound or here I'm quite sniffly tonight. It's I'm not sick, actually, it's allergies, but all, all the things that we have and judgments that we have. And the guru looks at you and says, I see no imperfections. You're perfectly yourself and you're perfectly as you should be. How's that? So then he came back and he taught meditation and the liberation that was there in the book Be Here Now. But he also served the world, chopping wood and carry water. He did hospice work. He did, started the Living Dying Project and all kinds of other hospice things. He did prison work. And he said, you know, when I go into death row, as he, as he did in San Quentin, he said, I go in the prisons. If they're short timers, they're there for a year or five years, they don't want to meditate. They just want to, you know, get out somehow. But when I sit with the guys, and it is mostly guys, on death row, he said, oh, then we get real. Because they really want to look at, well, who am I? What is this? Like he said, I love going into death row because we have a conversation from the heart that really matters. And I think about it because my, again, Trudy, my beloved, she runs a center in Los Angeles, inside L.A., that does all kinds of social action, Dharma in action, compassion in action projects in homeless shelters and with refugees and so forth. One of the things they've done is work in children's hospital, and they do retreats for the staff who work in the NICU, which is the neonatal ICU. And they'll bring make a retreat for the nurses or doctors or other people And they sit quietly, they do a practice of compassion, and they make a circle where they can talk. And the thing is that if you do that kind of work, you can't really talk to other people about it. Because every week you have these babies that you're tending early, preemies, and every week one or two of them die. You know, and you have to go and talk to the parents and say, I'm sorry, this beautiful child 
was born too early. This child didn't make it. You can't go home and say, oh, yeah, another baby died. It doesn't work that way. You have to in some way hold it. But that's also a terrible thing to have to hold in your heart. So like Ramdas, they make a space where they can, those who do this work can sit in the company of one another and tell the stories that weigh on their heart and find a way to hold it with a ritual and with a practice of compassion and more than anything in a community of those who hold it together. So this is what Ramdas did. He'd worked in business, social ventures, business bringing business leaders together to do it in a humane way. He started Save a Foundation with uh, a number of other people. They said, well, what can we do that's of value in the world? There are a lot of blind people. So they started a project to restore sight using very simple cataract surgery, uh, relatively inexpensive, starting primarily in India and Nepal and then spreading around the world. So far, they've done 4.5 million people who were blind who a day later walk out and are able to see. So when his guru said, love people and feed them, he did it. But he also had a field of great emptiness and detachment. I was there when a colleague of mine who had a whole spiritual community was going through a hard time with their director and with the other teachers and you know you think spiritual communities are nice places right <laughs> and they are except for one small problem people right <laughs> so this person was wrestling with how do I straighten this out and this person acted that one acted badly and this one undermined that one and this is going on all this stuff Ramdas listened to it all very, you know, sweetly and then gazed back and said, because the, the, the teacher was just all up in arms and having, how, how can I fix this? Ramdas looked and said, hmm, attachment, huh? <laughs> and that was all. And everything kind of dropped away because he pointed to how attached that person was that it was supposed to work out or be this way. Like, okay, it is the way it is. How about if you love it the way it is and maybe something better will happen? And people would come to him with their fear and their agitation and their depression or even judgments or even deeper things, you know, with their cancer or with a child who died. And he would gaze from this place of vastness and say, Maybe this was the time they were supposed to die. Maybe they've done their work on this earth. And to hear it in a space where it seems like nothing makes sense when a child dies. It's so terrible. And to say, well, maybe actually it was supposed to happen in this way. And we don't know. We don't know the vastness and the reasons for a a human being to be born and to live through what they do. And the vastness that he held was such a field of love that people realized, oh, okay, I can do this. I can hold even this difficulty. So the end of the retreat, uh, which we've taught, Trudy and I have taught with him over quite a few years now, he does a little blessing ceremony where the, those 350 people or so would come by and they would receive a little wrist mala of beads 
with a th- one thread from his guru's blanket tied into it, and he would give them that and do a blessing. This year he was quite weak and couldn't speak very much. He was pretty frail. So he blessed all the beads and the the malas, and then a, someone else stood there, one of his students, and gave them to each one. And then he sat there and blessed people as they walked by and kind of just gazed at them and gave them a blessing. He looked at people with so much love. In India, they call it the glance of mercy. When a teacher looks at you with so much love, um, that it changes you. And people would walk by and they get their beads and they'd just gaze at him and they would start to weep. I mean, I was weeping. It was, it was extraordinary. It was like Thomas Merton that I've talked about other times, walking down the street in Louisville where there's, there's that plaque for his mystical experience. The government put a plaque up there where he saw the secret beauty of everybody going past him. And he realized, what am I doing in the monastery? Everybody's shining like the divine walking down the street. And now I see it. And that's what it, looked, what it felt like sitting there, everybody going past Ramdas with this field of love, weeping. And I thought, this is how I want to live. I want to live being able to see in that way. I aspire to that. Now, of course, what's true is the heart opens and closes. You can't just, okay, I'm open all the time. <gasps> just going to be like this and never change. <sighs> you have to breathe. You know, you know that. And love and so forth. But there is a way to see that everybody you look at is kind of like the person you love most in the world. You know, your beloved child or your beloved partner or your beloved friend or whoever. I know you have complicated relationships. We won't talk about those. But you got somebody that you love. You know you do. And I do this. And I look at somebody and I say, well, suppose that were my daughter or my son. You know, how much would I love them and wish them well? And we have these lenses or this dimension of consciousness where we can look at someone and then switch into love. How's that? Try it. Okay, right now. It's nice to talk about it. But take a look around and pick somebody. You know, this. I mean, you're weird enough, so it doesn't matter what you do. <laughs> and just imagine that there's somebody that you really love, that they're like the person you love the most in the world. They're one of those. That's your daughter, you know, or your son, or your, you know, partner, or whoever it is. And you look at them and go, oh, how, how, how much you want them to be well, how you care for them, how you hope... Th- somehow that there's joy in their life, all those things. I mean, I do it on public transportation. (laughs) And it changes things. I I don't like to look in their eyes. They'd arrest me. I know that. But then you think, well, well, what... What stops you from doing that? What stops you from loving everybody? And I remember Ramdas was teaching in Oakland. He did a whole long thing, a series of classes some decades ago, about 
meditation about quieting the mind and opening the heart, and then getting up and serving the world. And that included taking care of the homeless, among many things, which is one of our major problems now. And at one point, during that six or eight week series, where he was teaching people to pay attention in a different way, a woman raised her hand and said, I have a story to tell Ramdas. She said, every day when I go to work, I take BART, and near the BART station for the last year has been this homeless man, or houseless man, this person who's been living on the street. And while I drop coins or money into his cup, I realized I never really looked at him. And coming to your class and kind of taking this in and gazing at people, I thought, well, maybe I'll really look at him. And then I got quite afraid. And then I realized what my fear was, that if I ever really looked at him, he'd be sleeping on my living room couch next week. (laughs) You understand? So it's really something for us to look at. What is it? What are the obstacles to our love and how we might express them? Now, somebody asked me who's here, who's going to replace Ram Das for the community of people that do love him? You know, Krishna Das, the great chant master, Jai Uttal, and so forth. I was sitting in San Francisco. Uh, when Zen Master Thich Nhat Hanh was here, Mark Benioff of Salesforce, who is one of his students, after Thich Nhat Hanh had a major stroke, brought Thich Nhat Hanh and a number of his monks and nuns to live in San Francisco so he could get really great medical treatment for about six months. So we would go and sit in the morning. He couldn't speak, but he would be wheeled in a wheelchair and he would sit with us anyway. And after we sat one morning, I was in the kitchen there with his one of his teaching partners, Sister Chen Kong. And she said that there was a big retreat at his temple in Southern California called Deer Park near San Diego. And I said, well, he's not going to be able to be there. Will many people go? And she smiled and she said, oh, it's full, hundreds of people. I said, oh, and she said, that's because Tai, as he was called, Tignat Han, has taught us that he's not his body and that we are him. So whether he's there or not, we are him. So we get together and we are those beautiful teachings that he offered. And I think that's true for Ramnas as well. I get quiet and I talk to him. And sometimes he answers or it seems to. I also talked to my teacher, Ajahn Chah, who died decades ago, but he still has some opinions about how I'm living and (laughs) what I'm doing. You know what I'm saying? We don't just live in this limited reality. There is something bigger. Now, in all this is a hint for how to practice in these hard times. Refugees by the millions climate crisis, racism that's in some places growing, war, divisiveness. Mind is the forerunner of all this, says the Buddha. There's all that really comes out of the human mind. Mind can either be 
Well, he says, who is your enemy? Mind is your enemy. No one can hurt you, harm you more than your own mind untrained, or the world, really. Who is your friend? Mind, heart is your friend. Nothing can help you more, not even the most beloved of you, than your own heart and mind, well-trained and tamed. But then there's a text called the Fire Sermon, and I'm thinking about Australia now, but I'm thinking about all the fires that we had last summer and may well come around. And there the Blessed One went and addressed the company of a thousand disciples and Gaia and said, this world is burning. Monks, nuns, you have come together. And with what is it burning? It's burning with greed. It's burning with hatred. It's burning with ignorance, fear. When we see the causes of the fire and then bring our loving awareness to those causes, it becomes possible to release greed and hatred and delusion and turn ourselves toward wisdom, toward love, toward connection. And this is the redemption of the world. Now, that was 2,600 years ago. The world is still burning. And if we look at climate change or other things, it's the same causes, isn't it? Greed, hatred, illusion, delusion, separateness, ignorance, and so forth. So what do we do? The secret is that we have to tend the inner as well as the outer. problems of the world as I've often said and you know are not going to be solved by technology not the most magnificent space technology, AI, artificial this and that, nanotechnology biotechnology, you know computers are going to stop warfare going to stop continuing racism and climate disruption because those come from those forces of greed and fear and hatred so yes, we need to tend the outer world, we need to chop wood, carry water, do the things in the world, but we also have to transform our human hearts. And you could say, well, what good is it if I just do my own thing? But you know where it starts. As Miss Piggy would say, moi, you know? <laughs> Somebody has to do it, right? Somebody, and as Ramdas said, you know, you are it. You are the world. The world is in you. You are the world. And he said it was this sense of vastness and love. Wisdom says I am nothing. Love says I am everything. And when you get quiet, you feel your connection. The whole idea of separation is completely uh, fiction. I mean, yes, there is a certain dimension of separation. When you're driving your car, you have to stop at the red light and let the people with the green light go. And if you think, oh, we're all one, you know, <laughs> you will be. 
but not in a very good way. But that's only one dimension. Ramdas used to say you have to remember your true nature and your social security number, basically. That you have to put those together in your life. But if you only are a materialist, um, then there's only fear. How much can I get? What do I get for me? But it's not who we are. And then the goal is not some special state. Okay, I'm going to meditate and have this fantastic experience. Well, you could, and that's lovely. One of the greatest of Zen masters, Hui Nung, says, one enlightened thought and one is a Buddha, one foolish thought and one is again an ordinary person. You may have noticed this in your life. So the point, the goal isn't to get something, okay, now I have it. The goal is to become love or to become, as my teacher Ajahn Chah said, to become the one who knows, to become the loving witness of this world. Ramdas used the phrase loving awareness, which I also use now a lot. To find in that attention that you bring to this mystery of your life, the capacity to be the witness of it and say, wow, because you will when you die and you float out of your body, you'll see. You're going to go, wow, that was an amazing incarnation. I messed up in those parts, but that part was pretty good, you know, and then you'll see, then you'll have the next one. But anyway, you, you'll see. Um, but you actually, you are consciousness. You're not the body. You're a spirit and consciousness. And you can... You can witness, you can observe, you can become the loving awareness itself, as we did even in our meditation sitting. And this brings a sense of trust as you do it, a sense of grace. Recently in L.A., we had a big benefit for Inside L.A., and one of the people who was part of this benefit, Trudy and I and some others did, was Father Greg Boyle. He started Homeboy Industries in L.A. 20-some years ago working with gang kids. And he's your basic saint, you know. And the cool thing about saints is they're not like wearing halos and robes and stuff like that. He's like this working guy who, who lives and works with young men and women, and now middle-aged ones too, who are coming out of the undeclared war on the war in the streets uh, of gangs, and there are people. He calls them the discards, the throwaways. You know, they've just been thrown into prison or shot at by one another or by the police or whatever. And he sees their beauty. He said every one of them has something, has some great gift. He sees their secret beauty in some way and. If you haven't got this book, Tattoos on the Heart, it's one of the best books I've read in the last 10 years. It's his stories of that work. So one kid comes in, sort of strutting in with lots of tattoos and all his kind of gang gear, but he was forced to go to this retreat. He wasn't even that happy about it. Usually it's people who come who want to. He seemed unable to shake the scowl across his face face and I say, yeah, dude, what's your name? Sniper, he says with a sneer. 
Okay, look, I'd been down this block before. I have a feeling you didn't pop out of your mom and she took one look at your ass and said, Sniper, so come on, dog, what's your real name? <laughs> Gonzalez, he relents a little. Okay, now, son, I know the staff here will call you by your last name. I'm not down with that. Tell me, mijo, what's your mom call you? Cabron. There's even the slightest flicker of innocence in his answer. Oh, dude, uh, son, I'm looking for a birth certificate here. The kid softens. I can tell it's happening. But there's embarrassment and a newfound vulnerability. My name? Napoleon. He manages to squeak out, pronouncing it in Spanish. Wow, I say, that's a fine, noble, historic name. But I'm almost positive that when your Jafita calls you, she doesn't use the whole nine yardas. Come on, mijito. Do you have an apado? What's your mom call you? And then I watch him go to some far distant place, a location he's not visited in some time. His voice, body language, and whole being are taking a new shape right before my eyes. Sometimes his voice so quiet I lean in. Sometimes when my mom's not mad at me, she calls me Napito. And I watch this kid move, transform from sniper to Gonzales to Cabron to Napoleon to Napito. We all just want to be called by the name our mom uses when she's not pissed off at us. <laughs> so we're there on stage, and he's talking about his work as if this is just what I do, it's my job, you know. But he also talked about how many people have died, how many funerals he's been to, because the gangs are shooting each other. And basically, you know, it's an initiation thing. It's young people trying to prove themselves because there's no they don't have a family that's intact or they don't have a way to prove themselves. All right, I'll get a family in the gang. It makes, it makes me safer. Okay, now you've got to shoot someone and then we'll know you're with us. If it was the Maasai in Africa and a young man had come of age, they'd say, oh, here's your spear, go bring back a lion. But these are young people, young men and women, who are trying to initiate themselves. They don't have elders, they don't have a wisdom tradition, you know, and this is the best they can do. So we were talking together and I said, I asked him, I said, so what's hard for you in this? Because he seemed so cheerful and loving. He said, ah, the hardest thing is that when kids I love kill kids I love. And I could hardly breathe. I said, well, what do you do with that? We were all like on the edge of our chair. And he said, you know, there's still a lot of people left to love. It was extraordinary. It was extraordinary. You know, so much forgiveness there is. Becoming wise in some kind of extraordinary way. <laughs> The day the child realizes that all adults are imperfect, he becomes an adolescent, or she. The day they forgive them, they become an adult. The day they forgive themselves, they become wise. And so he watches these kids grow up and learn to be something other than they thought they were in some moving and beautiful way. Um, and he looks in that same way with the eyes of love. To not judge, 
like one of the great Zen poets writes at the end of his life, looking at all the struggles and things. He says, my old faults, like snow falling on warm ground. I love this line. My old faults, like snow falling on warm ground. You see them, they're there, and they melt away because you're so loving or forgiving. You learn, as he did, to tolerate the messiness of life. So, dear friends, anything we try to do of value that matters will also be hard. We will meet obstacles. If you're a parent, you have to protect the little ones. I have this 14-month-old grandson who's now learned to walk. He walks around like an Olympic athlete. I can do it. Triumph, right? And strong little fingers. And he will get into anything and open any cabin and pulling. And the poor cat now has an enemy, right? Because he loves the cat. And he tries to grab her tail and pull the fur. And the cat's like, oh, my God, he's out again. You know, and he stations the cat. <laughs> Fortunately, the cat's faster. But you have to protect other people from him, but mostly you have to protect him to not put the wrong thing in his mouth and not hit another kid with his blocks and, you know, all the ways you have to protect this child and then they kind of get a little bit more grown up and then you have to protect them in other ways, you know, protect them from the bullies at school or protect them from whatever and then they're going to drive. Oh my God, what will we do? And then you have to talk to them about sex, right? They go through puberty and how do you know there are obstacles in parenting. Anybody who's ever parented knows that it's magnificent and it's also a piece of work, right? But you want to do it and you got to go through all those. Or if you have a garden, you plant all these beautiful things and then there are the pests, you know, and the drought, you know, or the weeds, or a cold spell comes, you know, climate change and all of that, or a hot spell or something. And you actually have to tend it there. You can't just plant the seeds and hope they grow. Or you start a business. You will have obstacles. Not enough capitalization. A key employee quits. The market changes. You know how it is. So anything you do that has a vision to bring a new person in the world, to plant a garden, to do a business, there will be obstacles. In Tibet, when you go to hear teachings or go to do some practice, they say there are always obstacles. And that makes it real. You have to get through the obstacles to do the thing that matters to you. Now in AA, they also say there are no coincidences. So now I'll say something kind of, I don't even know if it's true, but radical. <laughs> Maybe we as a species at this time on the planet need to hit bottom. You know, that's what works in AA. I mean, we're still users. We're still using, you know. We're using the oil and the coal and the armies and the all the other ways that we're we're addicts, really. And maybe all this, you know, and all that we face is asking us to get to the very bottom of it and look anew as a human species. We have to dig deeper somehow. 
in this and not just cover it over. And so the despair that many people express, the anxiety, the fear, the overwhelm, we have to do something of go deep in our own hearts and go deep in our minds as a species. When we did a day on climate change here last year, in conjunction with Jerry Brown's Climate Summit in San Francisco, thank you for Jerry and for the state of California and all that it's doing, On up here in front, I had a dialogue with uh, Cristina Figuera, a Costa Rican diplomat who then was appointed to be the United Nations Special Representative for Climate Change in these last years. She organized the Rio Summit, and she organized the Paris, Paris Summit. And the story that she told was that as she was trying to get the Paris Climate Summit to, hap summit to happen, it got worse and worse and more and more difficult People were recalcitrant. Nations were acting badly. She got more and more depressed and worried and afraid and in some deep way was losing faith in the whole process. And a friend said, you know, you need to step out of this. There's a place in southern France um, called Plum Village run by Thich Nhat Hans and Master. When Thich Nhat Hanh first came to San Francisco Zen Center to visit in the 80s, and I met him at that time, the abbot of the Zen Center at the time described him as a cross between a snail, because he's very slow, a cloud, because he's so empty, a snail, a cloud, and a piece of heavy machinery. Because <laughs> there's also something about him that's just unshakable and unstoppable. So she went down to Plum Village for a couple weeks or longer, and she said, it changed everything. Because when I went in, the field that I was wrestling with was victims and perpetrators. Which country did it to which country? Who did it? Whose fault is it? And they were all blaming each other. And when I left Thich Nhat Hans, because he's the great teacher of interdependence, I realized we're a family. And we're all related and I changed the whole template of how I was bringing Paris together, and we got 183 countries to sign the Climate Accord. So there will be obstacles, and you will feel fear, anxiety, or despair, but it's not the end of the story. This is Rachel Carlson, great environmentalist from 50 years ago. If I had influence with the good fairies who preside over the birth of all children, I would simply ask that her gift to each child in the world would be a sense of wonder so indestructible that it would last throughout their life. What Christina Figuera did is what we all need to do in some way to move from blame and judgment and anger and fear to a sense that we're in this together. To operate more from a sense of grace and mystery because we don't know how it's going to play out. And then do something. French general, I think his name was Lautre, he ordered that a 
certain kind of olive trees be planted in the place he'd taken over after the Second World War. Some days later, he he asked in an annoyed way, uh, uh, why weren't they there in the garden? And the gardener said, but, you know, General, these trees take, a these particular species of trees take a hundred years to mature. And he said, in that case, plant them this morning. You know, let's not wait. You come to the temple to quiet the mind, to listen deeply. You're with the complexity or stress or whatever brings you. You have a meditation practice, at least many of you do. And you use that also to get quiet and to listen, and to listen to what matters. To tend the heart, to steady the heart. And to find a kind of trust in this great mystery. What's beautiful is to see the land now. You know how incredibly dry it was and brown, you know, and it seemed like a desert in some way. And then a few big rainstorms came for the days and it came alive with green. It's just, all the animals here are happy. The ones in Australia are in the trouble right now. But there's something about life that wants to renew itself. And the thing is, you are that life. You also are part of this renewal. Dina Metzger, an activist and poet and friend, writes, Give me everything mangled and bruised, and I will make a light of it to make you weep and we will have rain, and we will begin again. It's never too late, you know, to start and to do something beautiful and magnificent. This is Thich Nhat Hanh, his teaching. He said, the mind and heart, the human mind and heart, is like a piece of land already planted with different kinds of seeds, seeds of joy, peace, mindfulness, understanding, and love, seeds of craving, anger, fear, hatred, and forgetfulness. These healthy and unhealthy seeds are always there, you may have noticed, sleeping in the soil of your own heart and mind. The quality of your life depends on the seeds that you water. If you water a seed of peace, peace will grow. When the seeds of happiness are watered, you will become happy. When the seed of fear or anger is watered, you will become frightened or angry. The seeds that are watered frequently are those that will grow strong. This is the way it works for us. You become loving awareness, you look at your own life, and then you can choose what to create, how to act, what seeds that you want to water. As Wendell Berry, another great poet, says, be joyful though you've considered all the facts. Right? Because <laughs> the world really, you know, the world really does, is, it is connected, you know, and it wants to renew itself, and it wants to renew itself through you. 
trying to consider whether to tell one more story before we... Ramdas told me I tell too many stories. I said, Ramdas, this is like the pot and the kettle. But you know how it is. It's much easier to see it outside yourself than it is. So there's a, a woman, I wish I, I had Googled her name, who started a sanctuary for elephants in Tennessee because there were all these retired circus elephants and elephants that had been used in different ways that were getting older, and she wanted to make a place that was safe for them. She got lots of acres in Tennessee, good horse country, now it's elephant country. (laughs) And um, anyway, she described this story. She said there were already, if she'd been working there for a dozen years or longer, there was an elephant in a zoo in Baton Rouge that had gotten too old for them to take care of. Elephant named Shirley, a female elephant. So uh, Shirley was packed up, you know, in one of those big elephant trailers or whatever, and brought all the way to Tennessee. And then they put Shirley in a kind of outdoor elephant pen next to where all the other elephants are, so they can kind of get to know each other before she's released into the the whole community of elephants. Well, when Shirley got there and the other elephants came by, she went a little berserk. She started trumpeting and stomping her feet and beating on the gates and the bars, and they just couldn't figure it out. They did a little research, and it turned out that 30 years before, When Shirley was just a few years old, she was part of a group of elephants in some, before she was sent to the zoo in some circus thing or something, with one of the elephants that was there. And she'd seen her friend. It had been 30 years. And she was just so excited to get back and see her. That's what they found when they did the research. And in fact, that was the other elephant that came and poked its trunk through and whatever. And when they let Shirley out, those two became like best friends, you know, after 30 years. It's mysterious. We are connected. And we can do something. It's never too late. So here's a question. Let yourself sit quietly for a moment. What seeds do you want to water in your own heart and mind? And in this world? And what are the obstacles you'll face? The obstacles that you need to overcome so that these healthy seeds, these beautiful seeds can grow.
I have a possible suggestion for you among the seeds that you might water. I'm actually going to hold up two books. One from my friend Paul Hawken called Drawdown, New York Times bestseller, the most comprehensive plan ever proposed to reverse global warming. And after crowdsourcing it out around the world to the best experts, in the back of the book is a summary of a hundred solutions to reverse global warming, not just to stop it. And all kinds of things, everything from food waste to the education of women and girls, which is at the very top of the list that would change the world. Yes, there's solar and wind, but there's all kinds of other stuff too. Um, pick one. Just get the book and choose which one. doesn't matter. Pick one of the hundred. If you want something to do, there's a little seeds to water. I really recommend it. And it gives heart instead of feeling like things are impossible. They're not. Drawdown. D-R-A-W-D-O-W-N. Drawdown. By Paul Hawken. And it's in our bookstore, but you can also order it from you-know-who. <laughs> The second book that may give you a hint is a book called A Bright Future by Joshua Goldstein and Stefan Kvist, um, Steven Pinker, the, the uh, Harvard professor who's really a, an anthropologist, philosopher, historian, uh, looking at you know, human development over centuries. He writes on the front, the most important book about climate change that I've read. On the back, James Hansen, who was the head of NASA um, and one of our most important climate scientists, says, this lays out the only viable path proposed for rapid global decarbonization. Christine Todd Whitman says, this is the, this is the path for us. And it says how some countries have solved climate change and the rest can follow. Now I have your attention. What this is is actually a, a vision of using nuclear power, which, you know, some of us who were hippies and activists and things like that boycotted nuclear power and things. But fourth-generation nuclear power plants that don't use water, that use sodium, that are much smaller, that have a much uh, decreased amount of uh, radioactive material that they create and that can be then reused in a, in a cycle and so forth, are not only incredibly much safer than the big old ones of, that, that have scared people, but it turns out that and, you know, Sweden doesn't use uh, coal or gas anymore, pretty much just does that, that if India or China were to choose to do this, or the U.S., build a thousand of these, China, no more use of coal, no more use of oil. It could entirely change um, the energy that's needed to run the country in a way that's, and these can be designed in a way that doesn't add to the danger of nuclear proliferation. So it's just, it's one of the many things in Drawdown, but one of the more important ones. We sit here while we sit, and the fires are burning in Australia. 
when the climate is changing in all these other places, but I'm particularly at the moment because we had all our own fires last summer, didn't we? Lots of them. Uh, I want us just before we end to do a little bit of metta, send a little cooling love to them. But first a blessing from John O'Donoghue. On the day when the weight deadens on your shoulders and you stumble, may the clay of the earth dance to balance you. May the nourishment of the earth be yours. May the clarity of light be yours. May the fluency of the ocean be yours. May the protection of the ancestors be yours. And so may a slow wind work these words of love around you, an invisible cloak, to hold your life. Let your eyes close again gently. Remember who you are. You are consciousness itself. You are loving awareness inhabiting this body. You are connected to everything, not separate from it at all. You are a life moving itself through you as through all the grass that shoots up from the soil. You are the web of life tending itself and you are the vastness. With your good heart, Picture or send blessings of loving kindness and coolness and care to all the creatures, the humans and the animals of Australia, all those running from these great fires. May they be cooled. May the winds abate and the heat diminish. The fires go out. Sprinkled with love and water and tears. And may life restore itself as it will again there and everywhere. Finally, bring that same tenderness to your own heart, to your own body and mind. 
water the seeds of your own love and courage and goodness. Thank you for your kind attention. Thanks for singing to the baby. It's kind of a sweet thing to do. And drive safely out there. It's crowded. Be polite with one another best you can. And uh, come back to Spirit Rock sometime. Let it be a place to walk the land or come on a retreat or whatever would serve you. Thanks and good night.